0: Trust you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing in our look in Philippians, and uh, I don't know about you, but I have been greatly encouraged and challenged by the messages that Mike has uh, brought so far, and. Uh, in chapter one, and as we move into chapter two and look into the rest of this book, my prayer is that the Spirit continues to use the Word of God to transform us into better followers of Christ. Now, this morning, um, I have the privilege of doing two things with you. First, I get to continue into this excellent series that we've been going through into Philippians. Um, this second set of, this beautiful set of sermons, but second, I get to start our Christmas series uh, of sermons, and I know some of you are sitting here wondering how i 'm going to do both of those things. continue in Philippians and start our Christmas series. Well, um, if you looked on the sermon card that you may have in front of you that we used to have in front of you, uh, it may be in your bible 's a bookmark. You may have noticed that this Christmas series is actually going to be in Philippians, um, in the text of Philippians itself. You see, the first 11 verses of chapter 2 of Philippians actually compose one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture about the importance of the incarnation of Christ. Now, I know some of you maybe were hoping for a Christmas series looking through Luke 2 or talking through uh, the characters of the Nativity, or Mary and Joseph, and studying their character and whatnot. And Mike may, in fact, talk about some of those things as we go forward in the series about Mary and Joseph and the baby in the manger. But the passage in Philippians 2 wrestles with the coming of Jesus in some ways that some of us may not have thought about ever in the Christmas season. We're going to look at some of the most important details like why Jesus came, why he came in the manner that he did, and what actually happened when he came and clothed himself in human flesh. I think I speak for Pastor Mike when I say that one of the goals for us as a congregation through this study is that Christmas becomes more of a, more than just a story about Mary and Joseph And a baby in a manger. But more so a story about the all-powerful God of the universe who put himself in human flesh. But this morning, we're going to look at the main application point Paul is, is making when he talks about the incarnation. You see, he doesn't just bring up the incarnation for fun. There's a point he wants to make by bringing up the incarnation of Christ. And in the passage stretching from verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives the application first. You see, sometimes Paul gives the doctrine and then he gives the application. If you read through the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are doctrine. Chapters 12 through 16 are application. Well, here in Philippians chapter 2, he gives the application first and then he gives the doctrine for why we should hold that application. So it's the application we're going to look at this morning. So without further ado, would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. You can take the one in front of you in the pew Bible or if you have your own Bible. We're going to read through verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. We'll pray and then dive into the text together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that is our text this morning, but we'll continue reading. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father this morning, this morning we consider it an honor and a joy and a privilege to dive into your word together. And we thank you for it. We thank you that it is true, it is without error, that it is your words, And as your words, they are meaningful to our lives. And they change us through the work of your Spirit. And so we ask this morning that you would do just that. That you would change us this morning. Make us better followers of Christ through the truth that you have set before us in this passage. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So like I said, the portion of the passage that we're going to look at this morning is verses 1 through 4. In the coming weeks, Pastor Mike is going to look at the rest of the passage up through chapter 11 as we enter the Christmas season. But now, I'm going to warn you up front that the portion of this passage doesn't deal with high levels of theology and a lot of in-depth things that we're going to have to figure out and uncover. In fact, the main points of this passage are extremely simple. So the challenge for me and, and for all of us this morning is not uh, to try to explain some in-depth theology or spiritual truth, but to convince you that this simple application point is very important. Important enough that each of our lives should look different when we go through that door at the end of the service. So let's look to the text and discover together what that main point is and what the passage is talking about this morning. So when we look at verses 1 through 4... The first thing we should notice is that the main statement of the passage is actually in verse 2. The outline of the passage looks like this. The main point of the passage is in verse 2. And that main point is the unity of the church. Then at verse 1, he gives us the foundation for why we should have unity as a church. Verse 3 gives us the manner in which believers are unified. And verse 4 is the results of that unity of the church. So let's look first at Paul's main point in verse 2. The unity of the believers. First, notice that Paul's actual command is not to be unified. He doesn't say be unified. In fact, he says, it's to complete his joy. Does this seem weird to you? Well, it seemed weird to me at first until I looked through the rest of the book and and what we've looked at already in chapter one. Notice that Paul says in verse four of chapter one that he is joyful when he gets to pray for the Philippians. Pastor Mike talked about this. Paul is joyful when he's praying for the Philippians. So Paul is brought joy when he gets to pray for this church. Then look down at verse 18 of chapter 1 with me. Here, Paul is again being joyful. But this time, it's because the gospel is being preached to the church. Even if it's by men, and remember he says this, by men who are looking to do Paul harm. These men are looking to hurt Paul, and yet he says he is joyful, he rejoices that the gospel is still being preached to them. So when we get to chapter 2, already we see two different times in this book that Paul is talking about his own joy. And it's very important for Paul. Not only on his own behalf and for his own behalf, but because it gives the believers in Philippi an example of what to be joyful about. They should be joyful about praying for their church. They should be joyful that the gospel is being preached. So here is another example of why they should be joyful. The nature of these things brings Paul joy and that's tied to the church in Philippi and not to his own interests. Paul isn't joyful about his own life and his own interests and his own pursuits. His his joy is tied to the church in Philippi about their well-being and how they're doing. Those are the things that bring Paul's joy. He preaches the gospel to them and, and observes that the gospel is being preached even after he leaves and he has brought joy. So in our passage this morning, Paul has brought joy by the unity of the church in Philippi. Here again, it's not his own situation, his own interests that brings him joy, but it's the interests of the church in Philippi that are bringing him joy. What a great example. And even further, notice the actual verb that Paul uses here. He instructs them to complete is joy by being unified. Paul's entire joyful state is wrapped up in the church he planted and preached to and prayed for. It's The so-called icing on the cake, you could say, is that the church in Philippi be unified. That is the ultimate joy for Paul, that they are unified. And look how Paul describes what he means by unity. Look at the phrases here. He tells them to be of the same mind. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. The images here is that they would think as one unit. It's important to distinguish what he doesn't mean. He doesn't doesn't mean that everyone in the church should agree and have the same opinions and have the same conclusions about everything. That's not what he means. In other letter, letters, Paul assumes that we as Christians are going to disagree on things. But that's not what he's urging them. He's, here he's urging them to have the same mindset. Have the same mindset. This is the phrase he uses in chapter 4, verse 2. Where he's instructing two ladies in the church who are having disagreement. He's instructing them to have disagreement. The same mindset. It's the same phrase. And what is that mindset that he's instructing them to have? Well, remember, it's about citizenship in heaven. We looked at this last week. We looked at this as we looked at chapter 1. Citizenship in heaven. When our focus is on our true citizenship, the petty disagreements that we have with one another often seem to disappear. But he continues in verse 2 about describing this single-mindedness that the believer should have. First, he describes it as having the same love. That's the next phrase that he uses. I think first of all, he's hearkening back to what he says in verse 1 about comfort from love. Of chapter, verse 1 of chapter 2. And we'll discuss what he means in a moment by comfort from love. But he's hearkening back to this comfort from love. Well, suffice it to say for now that Paul is talking about the love that God has for his children. So I think first, Paul means that the believers in Philippi should have the same love for each other that God has for them. This is a very powerful statement that he makes, but it's important to the logic of his argument in the next two verses. God's love is self sacrificial and giving. It's unconditional. And this is the love that the believers in Philippi are supposed to have for one another. God's love for them. But secondly, I think Paul also means that their love for one another should be equal. It should be the same. They are to love one another the same. Not showing preference for one another. This is important to single-mindedness as well. That our love for each other is the same. I shouldn't love someone because they like me, or they're like me, or they have the same interests as me. I shouldn't love someone for those things. I should love everyone equally. I think Paul is saying that as well. Don't show preference in who you love. The next phrase that he uses, I think, is very rich in meaning. He describes their unity as being in full accord and one mind. Now our English term, full accord, uh, isn't very descriptive. Um, I think of cars when I hear that, Honda Accords. So I, I, it's not very descriptive. But the Greek here is actually beautiful. And, and I want to try to explain to you what Paul, what Paul is saying. And I think it will, will help us understand this passage better. The Greek is actually a compound word. It's made up of two different words. The first is simply means together with. It's a preposition. If I would say I was Pastor Mike and I were going uh, I was going together with Pastor Mike to do an activity. It's simply together with doing something together with someone. The second term he uses in this compound word is the Greek word for soul. This, this is the large idea in Greek about what makes up the invisible portion of a person our soul. so when we put these two words together we, we creates this beautiful idea of sharing a soul. Paul is saying that in a church believers in a sense are sharing a soul and notice that immediately after discussing this sharing a soul Paul talks about the same mind again. Hearkening to the idea of the church being a body, a soul, a mind, having the same unity, the same person. Just as one person shares the same soul and mind, so the church, as one body, shares the same soul and mind. So with these phrases we see how Paul describes the unity that we as a church are to have with one another. We share God's love for one another equally. And we operate as one body, one mind, with one spirit and soul. But we need to backtrack to verse 1. To see the foundation for the unity that Paul is talking about. Verse 1 gives us four phrases that Paul uses, each starting with if. So we have to raise a question at first. Are these if statements, are they actually uncertainties? Is Paul really not sure if, if we have comfort in love and encouragement in Christ? Are they uncertainties? Or sometimes they're statements of fact. No, we do have encouragement in Christ and comfort in love. And that is what Paul is doing here. You can tell by the phrasing he uses in the Greek. It's a certainty. No, we have these things. We have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort in love. And that is what drives us forward. He's stating facts. So you could almost translate it as this. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort in love and participation in the Spirit. So we don't need to pursue them or go after them in any way. Now granted, Paul is assuming he's talking to a room full of believers this morning. Now this is an important distinction. If you're not a believer in Christ this morning, then these assertions, these assumptions don't apply. But if you are here this morning and are believing in Christ as your Savior, then take heart because you have these things in full. These are glorious truths to hold on to. And what of the actual phrases that he uses? I think that these verses actually have a distinct Trinitarian feel to them. Do you see it? Notice that Paul explicitly mentions two persons of the Trinity in this verse. The Son and the Spirit. The only one missing is the Father. But I think if we look back in the Old Testament for a moment, we can ask, what's the primary, or at least one of the primary attributes that God is given in the Old Testament? And that's love. The love that he has for his people, and that his actions with them are based out of. So here Paul merely substitutes the character trait of God for the Father. But there's another reason that this passage is Trinitarian. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 14 with me. It says this, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. This is the benediction that he's giving for the book of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, in this verse, which is the benediction, Paul references the Trinity. And two of the adject- two of the same adjectives that he uses in 2 Corinthians to talk about the Trinity, he uses here in Philippians. So, what is the foundation for the unity that we share together as believers? the Trinity itself. There is no better example of single-minded unity than the Trinity. The way in which the three persons of the Godhead actually relate to one another. That is the foundation for our unity together. But, what are the adjectives that he uses here in verse 1? Why does he talk about encouragement? Why does he talk about comfort? Well, remember with me what Paul says in the previous chapter, how he ends it. What's he talking about? Look at chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the context of our unity as believers is set in suffering. The context is one of suffering. Our unity is, is the mindset that we should have in suffering. So this is why Paul reassures the church in Philippi that there is encouragement and comfort in Christ. There is encouragement and comfort in the gospel itself, the Trinity and the gospel. The adjectives Paul uses here are necessary for a church that is undergoing persecution and undergoing suffering for the sake of the gospel. And it's Christ that he lists first in verse 1. And it's in suffering for him, it is ultimately he that provides the encouragement to bear under the encouragement, to bear up under the persecution. We are suffering for the sake of Christ, but he provides the ability to get through that suffering. And that's why he lists Christ first. And we have already looked at the love of God a little bit and the comfort that is found in that. And next, he talks about the participation in the Spirit. Some of your translation, translations may read like this. Fellowship in Spirit. Which emphasizes the unity that we have with one another. But I think it's best to translate it, Participation in the Spirit, with a capital S. I've already mentioned the Trinitarian nature of this passage. But I also think it makes good logical sense to as this is a reference to the Holy Spirit here. It's all well and good that there's encouragement and comfort in God and Christ. But it's the Spirit that actually takes those things and applies them to our hearts in the midst of the suffering. The Spirit, which indwells us, is the person of the Trinity that applies these things to our hearts and changes us, that makes them real to us. So participation in the Spirit, as a believer is essential to our unity in the mindset, in the suffering, in the midst of suffering. And the last phrase in verse 1 that he uses, affection and sympathy, seems a little bit tacked on to the end. He just explained how the Trinity itself is the foundation for our unity through suffering. So why does he mention affection and sympathy without any kind of modifiers? He doesn't put a person or anything behind them. Well, it seems that he's leading into verse 2 with this phrase. After all, why would the Philippians care to make Paul's joy complete? Well, I think he's reminding them of their feelings for him. They have affection and sympathy for Paul and thus would want to complete his joy. It's also telling what he's about to say. Since they have affection and sympathy, they should desire to care for one another. That should be their motivation to care. So, we've looked at the foundation of the unity, the goodness of God through the Trinity. And verse 3, Paul next looks at the manner in which the unity is attained. Paul gives us a very simple two-part sentence to teach us this. First, he says that we should do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Paul is dealing with the motivations of our hearts. Church should not be a competition. We shouldn't be coming and serving and helping out at church because we want to appear spiritually mature, to look a certain way. Paul explains in the second uh, part of this sentence, the positive side of this. Don't be conceited, but instead count others ...as more significant than ourselves. So there it is. It's not difficult to understand. There's no hidden meaning... ...complex phrasing to unpack. Paul simply says... ...to count others... ...as more significant... ...than ourselves. This is, by the way... ...the biblical definition of humility. And it's certainly one of the most difficult things for us as believers to do. Too often we are concerned with our own well-being, the things in our lives that we want to focus on. We elevate ourselves to prominence when instead we should be elevating others, showing them their importance to the body of Christ. Paul teaches the importance of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he discusses the church as one body with many members, and each member is just as important as the next. Paul has already hinted to us of this body analogy in verse 2, dealing with one mind and one soul, and he's building further upon that. Ultimately, our humility in counting others as more significant than ourselves stems from the gospel itself, doesn't it? It's what Paul's going to spend the next several verses in the passage on. That that though Christ was God, considered us lowly humans as significant enough to clothe himself in weak human flesh. And to meet our needs. This, Paul says, is the attitude that we should have with one another. So, when we do this and consider others more significant than ourselves, how does that look? What are the results of this godly humility? We'll look no further than verse 4, where he gives the results. Our humility plays itself out in our lives by causing us to look after the interests of others. If I am truly counting others as more significant than myself, it should c- cause in me a desire to look after the interests of others. Instead of coming to church with my head down, pondering my own problems, thinking about my own issues in my own life, I should be coming to church with my head up, looking around, looking to those around me, seeing what their needs may be, and looking to meet their needs in whatever way I can. Imagine, if you will, And this may or may not be difficult, depending on the state of our own hearts. But imagine a place where everyone is concerned with meeting the needs of those around them. Our relationships would be focused on how we can help others, instead of how they can help us. If we have a skill or ability that can be used to help someone else accomplish something, then our first instinct should be to meet that need. In a sense, we can use this as a litmus test of our own hearts and attitudes towards one another. I can say all that I want about my desire being to serve other people, and to help other people, and to love other people. But how does that actually play out in my own life? Well, an easy way to tell, and I must say a rather convicting one for myself, is to examine our actions, maybe over the past year. What we did at Thanksgiving, a lot of us, is gave thanks for things that God did over the past year. Well, we can do the same thing here. Look over the past year. Look back at 2013 and evaluate how you have spent your time. How have we spent the majority of our time? have we spent it working on our own projects, trying to accomplish our own goals that we set for our own lives? Or have we actually humbled ourselves by going out and meeting the needs of those around us? I think doing this evaluation will give a pretty clear indication of the state of our humble motivations and how we view those around us. So I mentioned at the beginning that the truth found in our passage this morning is not difficult to understand but is certainly a difficult one to carry out. We are still sinners, and we still naturally want to care for ourselves and our own needs first. So I think it's helpful for us to identify some of the things in our lives that often keep us from looking after the interests of others. What are those things in your life, in my life, that keep us from serving those around us? Do I... Uh, Could it be age? Do I think I'm too old to go out and help others by meeting their needs? Or maybe I'm too young. We have a fair amount of young people, teens, maybe even younger. Do I ever think uh, that I'm not of the right age to go out and help people? What about um, financial state? Do I ever think that I don't have enough money to help meet other people's needs. Now I know money can in fact be a limiting factor. In what we can do for one another. But Paul doesn't only give money. It is, he doesn't only have money as an example. As something in mind. Maybe someone just needs our muscles. Or our intellect. Or our wisdom in handling money. And yet we often use money as a reason not to help one another. I think the list could go on and on. And maybe it's our family situation or other time commitments. I'm sure each of us could list a dozen things in our lives that keep us from serving those around us. And some of these things may certainly be important. I'm not saying we should default on our own bills in order to help someone else out. But I am saying that counting others as more significant than ourselves means that we spend time and energy meeting the needs of others. Finally, we need to ask why this is important. Does it really matter how much we really serve one another and look after each other's interests and needs? Can't we just go on, each meeting our own needs, and then there would be no need to serve one another because everyone would be meeting their own needs? Why is this important? Well, let me give you two reasons from the things we've already looked at in our study of philippians that say that this is important first it harkens back to what pastor mike talked about last week that we live in a manner worthy of the gospel ultimately what is the manner worthy of the gospel well it's he talked about standing and striving together taking the standard of the gospel itself and what is that standard the standard set before us is self-sacrifice. To the extreme degree. The standard of the gospel is giving one's own life to meet the needs of others. And for us as disciples of Christ, our self-sacrifice for each other should mirror that of our savior, our head. But second, remember with me how Paul is emphasizing the advancement of the gospel. He doesn't care if these false teachers are slamming him as long as the gospel is being advanced. Paul didn't care if his own name was drugged through the mud as long as the gospel was proclaimed. The advancement of the gospel was what consumed Paul's life. And listen to this now. How we treat each other is very important to the advancement of the gospel. That's right. The success of the gospel doing its work is partially dependent on the manner and way in which we look after one another. There are are two ways I see this happening. First, we accomplish more work when we are working together instead of fighting. It's a pretty simple concept, but important nonetheless. If we spend our time in rivalry and disagreeing amongst ourselves, our energy and our tension is diverted away from the true mission set before us. Quite simply, a house divided against itself cannot stand. We cannot function together unless we are unified together as one body. The second way in which we, how we treat each other affects the advancement of the gospel, is this. Our testimony stands firm when our actions meet our confession. We say, as Christians, that Christ makes a difference in our lives. But does He? He, he says this in John 13, 34-35. to 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Christ makes it quite clear that the outside knows who we are as disciples of Christ by how we love and treat one another. This is what true unity in the church looks like. And that unity is vitally important to an outside world that is looking in and scrutinizing our every action. As Christ says, we are actually showing the world what the love of Christ is by showing that self-sacrificing love to one another. And so there we have it. Not a difficult set of truths to understand, but ones that are very difficult to carry out. We should strive for unity together that is founded on the truth of the Trinity. Accomplished by thinking of others as more significant than ourselves. And results in each of us looking after the interests of others. Our example is the work of Christ himself, who gave everything for the people he came to save For the Philippians, whose context was suffering for the sake of the gospel, it was easy to understand and practice. I think we have a greater challenge today where we very rarely ever suffer persecution or hardship for the sake of Christ. And as we don't suffer for Christ, I think it's all the more important for us to carry out these truths. In a culture that is driven by materialism and a desire to care for ourselves first. Our actions towards one another will all the more separate us from the world around us. What a true and good witness to Christ we can be in the community of Greenbelt if we love and serve one another in humility and love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise. And we admit that and confess that, that we do not love each other, that we do not serve each other, that we do not consider others as more significant than ourselves very often. We too often look like our coworkers and our bosses and and, and those around us in our communities seeking after our own selves and our own interests. And are not guided by the love that you have for us. And that you call us to serve one another with that same love. Father, we ask that your spirit would work in our hearts. That you would apply this truth to our lives. That through the gospel, you would change us. That you would remind us of Christ each and every day. Of his example set before us. Of true sacrificial humility serving one another. And it's His name we pray.